This is Aviation Careers Podcast, an aviation podcast about living your dream and pursuing an exciting aviation career. Your host, Carl Valeri, has over a decade of experience counseling pilots. Aviation Careers Podcast will help you navigate towards your aviation career goal. Here is your host, Carl Valeri. Ab initio is a Latin term meaning from the beginning, but what does it mean in aviation? Well, today we're going to find out. Welcome to episode 95 of Aviation Careers Podcast. Today, we'll learn the meaning of this and other terms. Well, joining me today is Eric Crump, Aerospace Director at Polk State College, and Tom Wachowski, Corporate Pilot and Host of the Private Jet Podcast. Welcome, Eric, and congratulations on this new program with ExpressJet. Thank you very much, Carl. Very glad to be here, and um, we're thrilled to be working with ExpressJet, um, and uh, very happy about what the future holds for our program terms of learning content and also for our students in terms of jobs. Real quickly, though, since uh, some of our listeners haven't heard about this, what is it uh, that what's the special relationship you now have with ExpressJet? Uh, just a couple of weeks ago, actually, Polk State uh, was admitted into um, ExpressJet's AP3 or Airline Pilot Preparation Program or something like that, AP3 for short. Um, and uh, part of that program uh, has an obvious uh, interview and hiring benefit for our students. That's a guaranteed interview and um, a, a preferential hiring in terms of job placements when uh, when Expression is hiring, which is certainly right now. And um, beyond that, in addition to just hiring, which is cool, everybody loves to have a job at the end of the tunnel, but it actually, this agreement is a little bit special in that uh, both our organizations will work together in terms of curriculum development and instruction. So our material goes to ExpressJet. ExpressJet's material comes to us. And uh, we actually have the opportunity to teach a basically a CRJ ground school uh, in college as sort of, I, I call it, uh, uh, pre-new hire training. So um, the students will actually learn um, express jet operations procedures, checklists, flows, um, and do a, a complete ground school on the airplane so that when they show up for new hire training, uh, they're I've told the students not to sleep through new hire training because that would be a little <laughs> offensive. But in an ideal world, you should be able to. You should be totally prepared the day you show up. And this is all about making sure that we're not just pumping a, a quantity of pilots into the hiring pipeline, but that qu- that quantity is also backed up by quality. And that's, uh, that's what we're after here. This is almost like an ab initio program. Well, wait a minute. I'm getting ahead of myself. (laughs) (laughs) We're gonna we're gonna talk about that a little bit later. I'm gonna get uh, a lot of email if you start calling this an ab initio program, Carl. I did that purposely. We're we're gonna we're gonna clear the air as far as what ab initio truly is. Uh, What he just described, some people do think is ab initio. Well, again, welcome and uh, and also welcome Tom and great job in the last episode of Private Jet Podcast. He did a podcast on how to mitigate operational mistakes with Dan. Dominguez and Dominguez and uh, from Open Safety. That was a really cool show. And tell us a little bit about that, Tom. Yeah. Hi, uh, hi, Carl. Hi, Eric. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, that was a great show. Dan is uh, boy. When you want to talk about safety statistics and how it impacts, you know, e- each one of us, uh, you know, from flight training to corporate to to flying you know, the Airbus. Uh, uh, he has some data that's a real eye opener, and, and you know everybody can participate in this. You know, they've got the NASA forms and and various ways to report things that you see out in the line that could impact safety. But yeah, that was a great episode. Uh, I really enjoyed, you know, the insight that Dan brought there. 
And if you're looking at getting into the the safety side of things, I think it's really cool to listen to that episode because he he talks a, just a slight bit about the career, but uh, but it gives you an idea what the person does that type of thing. Uh, and he's he's a really neat guy and a really neat concept. Open Safety. I, I really really commend the people for what they do over there at Open Safety. Well, again, welcome. And uh, in today's episode, we're going to concentrate on an issue that's been. But on all the, the, the boards on the internet has been blowing up a lot lately. They're talking about ab initio. And if, if you noticed uh, ab initio training programs, and if you notice I teased Eric a little bit there concerning what ab initio training is and what those programs actually mean in aviation. And, you know, like I said, ab initio, it's, it's Latin. If you remember taking Latin in high school, it's from the beginning. And, uh, you know, this, this means from the beginning. You start your training with an airline. You're selected through an interview process before you've even started your licenses. It's, it's a time when they're going to hire you, and they're going to say, hey, listen, we're going to pay to have you go through all your training, but at the end, you're going to have a slot flying. And you know what? You start working for that airline right away. You know, I, I've seen this this happen in the past. I've done ab initio programs with uh, Korean Airlines and a couple other airlines throughout the world, and they it's really cool to see the fact that they have this program that can take you from point A and take you right to point B, which is the airline cockpit. A lot of us uh, aren't used to ab initio programs, and they but they've been around for a long time. So what do they do? They just go out there and they select people that have an aptitude towards aviation through testing etc then they put you in this program and uh, and throughout the program there's many many gateways that you have to go through and uh, and then you make it to the end now ab initio programs and this is what I the point I want to make there's a lot of programs that have been introduced lately by the airlines and those programs similar to what uh, Eric just described may seem to be an ab initio program but you're responsible for all of your training costs, etc. Whereas ab initio, it's a time when they're spending the money on it. So well, now after saying that, Eric, are, do you have an ab initio program? No, no. And there aren't all that many um, collegiate level ab initio programs um, that work for uh, U.S. airlines. Um, and that's, I'm sure that's, <laughs> that's kind of the whole point of what we're talking about. Um, Ab initio, in terms of what how we think about pilot training and pilot recruitment, um, is very much a military concept. The military has been doing this type of thing for eons. This is how they train pilots, um, and we'll get to what that model actually looks like. Um, and the European airlines have been making use of ab initio programs for many years. Um, the U.S. airlines tried this in the '60s. Um, and it, uh, it, it did not go, <laughs> it just didn't go the way that we thought it was going to, uh, at the time. And again, that's mainly because we have always trained and placed pilots in a different way in the United States, because in the United States, we have a lot of hobby flying. Now, granted, we have a lot less today than we did back in the, you know, back in the heyday of aviation, but in Europe, there is no hobby flying. I mean, there's a few, a uh, few clubs here and there. But um, the percentage of, or rather the ratio of general aviation to commercial flying is a totally different number uh, in Europe um, than it is in the United States, predicated mainly because of operating costs and user fees for the uh, airspace system. So we've always sort of, there are two ways into the airline cockpit if you want to think about it in real general terms. You have to go to the military, you do your time, and then you go in that way. Or you, um, 
you train through a civilian mindset. Either that's through an academy or on your own. You add your ratings, you get all your time, and you go to work for an airline. So our model of pilot recruitment has always been different. And so today when people hear the, the word ab initio in the United States, that tends to mean like what Carl was joking with me a minute ago. Well, I started a pilot training program with the intent of going to the airlines. Um, and that's that's not true ab initio program, um, a true ab initio program for a couple of things. One, because of the time it still takes to get into the airline cockpit and who pays the bill. <laughs> so it's a slightly different concept, but I'll throw it back to you, Carl. You know, it's interesting. If, if you think about this, the, the ab initio program, the one that I always think of that is a collegiate level ab initio program that's been around for a very long time time in the United States is out in Colorado and it's the U.S. Air Force Academy. And from the moment you go in there, you get selected and possibly go on to, to a slot in, in flying. Uh, whereas, you know, the, it was great that you gave those two. There's the military side and then there's the, the airline side. The airline side are programs like Lufthansa flight training. Was it Cathay Pacific also has a cadet program and we'll have links to those two but different programs. But remember this, you know the airline. Excuse me. The military has been doing ab initio from the beginning. I mean, you go in, you take an aptitude test, you take a, a medical, and they tell you, okay, you have this slot, and you go through different gates, and you go through, you, you make it through different programs. For instance, I used to do training for the McDill Air Force Base here in Tampa, Florida, in their IFT program. That's the initial flight training program. As a civilian contractor, I would train military pilots. And then they would get to possibly the pilot, uh, private pilot, maybe not, just a certain number of hours, and then would, they would go on to UPT. But after the IF, UPT being the undergraduate pilot training program, in the initial flight training program, at the end, I was told that I had to write something about that pilot I was training and, and basically, you know, how they did, et cetera, and do you think they would be successful moving forward? It worked out really well. It, it saved a lot of money with uh, government, but, uh, but they went back to that, that IFT primarily being with the military now because they have new training aircraft. This was a time when they were going to a different type of training program and training aircraft. But, you know, even with that, we have limitations because there's limitations as to what we can do as civilians and and help them with the military. We don't do as much aerobatics as they do in the military right off the bat. So that was that's a limitation primarily because of costs. I mean, it's it's costly to to get those type of aircraft and and have them out there flying all the time, you know, the 172s and all. It's it's easier to have them out on the line and flying those. So that's there's a difference there, but the the undergraduate pilot training programs in the military this is what's really interesting. I've I've heard a lot on the internet, and people are saying, "Well, you know, fifteen hundred hours—that's that's not that much, and that's not very experienced." Well, a lot of my friends that flown for the Navy, Marines, and Air Force are actually soloing a fighter jet within two hundred fifty to three hundred fifty hours. That's pretty amazing. They go from zero time to soloing that aircraft, and and let's not even mention some of the really cool training aircraft that they have. Uh, that they're out there doing aerobatics in in just a, a few hours. So so to, to really summarize it, the ab initio program is a program where they take you from the beginning and somebody is actually paying you while you're going through this program or you're working as an intern as opposed to what we do in the United States. You know, what, what Eric was talking about back in the 50s, 60s, you know, they had a, a lot of a real shortage in pilots, and I, I can't find the article. I had a copy of it. It said, you know, if you have your private pilot's license, 
here at United Airlines, we'll hire you and we'll get you all your ratings. I think that's that's pretty interesting. So, but that's that's almost that's ab initio from the point from being a private on. So, hopefully, you'll earn, understand a little bit about ab initio and and what it truly means. I'm getting a lot of emails uh, from folks again that are asking me, you know, about the new ab initio programs with certain airlines and they aren't truly ab initio because you aren't being you're not you're actually having to pay for those programs and getting in those into those programs sometimes it's a long process and uh, and if you read the fine print a lot of these are actually well they're still under development so so be careful there um now tom have you ever worked with an ab initio i have not no but uh well let me rephrase that i guess i have worked with people who have been through uh you know the military program and i do currently work with people who've been through that program uh but outside of that no Okay, good. Because I, I just, you know, because it's not that common, and uh, and you don't see too many people going through these ab initio trainings. Other than years ago, especially prior to 9-11, we had a lot of ab initio from the foreign airlines doing work right here in the U.S. So some really cool stuff there. And uh, Eric, did you have anything to add as far as the ab initio? Did we miss any points there? Well, I just have a question for Tom, actually, because, um, yeah. you know, Tom is still, you're still doing the the corporate pilot thing, I envy you some days. Um, and, uh, <laughs> I, I envy other, you some days, Eric. There are other days where you probably envy me. But, yes. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, that's, a, that's one heck of a lifestyle, man. I, I do miss it from time to time. I'm just curious um, for your thoughts. In the corporate world, um, is, there a, is there a sense in which an, an ab initio program could work like it does in the airline mode in the corporate world? Is there a sense at which that would be possible even? Well, I'm going to shoot from the hip uh, because, you know, I don't have the data to say yes or no either way. But if I kind of go back to what I see and hear, uh, you know, out in the world, you know, prior to the position I'm in now, I was contracting a little bit uh, over the years. And so thinking back to all of those experiences, I would say no. Uh, It is a corporate is an industry still very much um, almost a club. And the club kind of has certain entry requirements, and I'm speaking very, very broadly. But I have difficulty seeing an ab initio program fit into one of those, uh, you know, air quote entry requirements. And so, perhaps. But boy, you know, I know uh, portions of the airlines are having trouble recruiting pilots, but but corporates just not having any trouble at all. So I I don't see it in the future. I just I think there's such a huge difference in yes, scope yes. of operations from your straight 91, your 91Ks, your 135s. Like it's such a dramatically different landscape from one operator to the next. Where yeah. here you may be flying an SR22 and 91K, and over here you're flying a Sovereign in 135. You know, just right. a totally and yep. it's just a totally different. Or you'd be flying a Sovereign under Part 91. Right, um, right. Such a very dramatic different. Uh, concept where I, I, that was sort of a lead off to why I think ab initio programs work well in the airline and the military concept because you are flying one airplane on one mission. Yeah. And I think for, for an ab initio program to work, that's really how it has to work. And for me, I don't so much see you know who's paying the bills being the sole determining factor of if this is a, uh, an ab initio program or not. I'm also looking to see what the outcome is. Is this an accelerated program to get you a commercial pilot certificate? Okay, well, that's an accelerated flight training program. Is this a training program designed so that you can go to work for an airline flying an airplane on a leg? 
then that's ab initio training. Ab initio training has a very specific end goal, not necessarily with a guaranteed hiring outcome. I mean, Luflanza doesn't have a guaranteed hire on their ab initio program, but in order for them to recoup their training dollars, then they have to hire you, basically is how it works. So if they choose not to hire you, you still get all the training, you didn't have to pay for it, and they don't get the money back. Um, So I just, I don't see... I don't see corporate operators in the near future anyway sure. getting together for a big confab and agreeing, you know what we should do? We should have a corporate aviation ab initio program <laughs> because a baron and a sovereign under 91 and 135 are, quite frankly, just operated differently. Yeah, it's a different it's Mars operation. and Venus. Oh, and yeah. even, even a 135 operation here and at another airport in the same city are probably totally different operations. That's true. You're right. Um, yes. And I just, I don't know... I know that ab initio will ever find its way into corporate aviation because of the difference of the mission, and I think that's why ab initio works in the airline world and in the military world. Yeah, it's a great point. Well, I, I think, too, it, let's go back to that expense because there is a little bit to think about there. There is a bit of economies of scale with an airline that you don't have in a corporate develop, department where, uh, you know, you take someone from point A to point B and you have a certain dropout rate. It seems a percentage of dropouts, in other words, not actually taking a job at the airline at the end, which is actually is, is the goal, is to have them go through this training and then get hired. You just spend all this money. And if they leave, then you've lost all that money in training. Uh, but, you know, a, a corporate flight department, I don't think, could absorb the cost quite as much as a larger airline. Yeah. That's my opinion. True. But yep. I, I think there's there's a couple things. And and I think Tom brought this this point up is, you know, you were going to ask a question, I think, Tom, about, about this. Well, I think what, you know, I look at a program like this, especially any program, and Eric, you would maybe appreciate this because you're always evaluating, you know, how you're training your students and really what are we trying to get? What's the end product, right? This is somewhat of an assembly line and what's the quality of uh, the end widget and, and I think you know maybe I'll, I'll throw it at you guys what is the key to success in these ab initio programs for maybe both the employee and the employer and, and I have an idea what I think the answer is but what do you guys think would be the key success factor for for this whole thing to work well I guess I'll, I'll start off real quick as far as from the employer standpoint I have a a guaranteed stream of employees in a in an environment in which I can't find the or I don't have enough qualified applicants but I also am training them to work in my operation on my aircraft and when they come out they're ready to start there is not you know they they're from from day 1 they're actually flying the line because of the fact that I've trained them every single day to work in our environment. And you know, in any, any environment, it takes a long time to get used to that. And I'll give you a good example, and, and I like to use this example. The flow-through programs with airlines is very similar to that as, as far as the ab initio training is, is concerned. You're training people to actually work within your environment. So when you see people that are working at Delta Express going to Delta Airlines, it's like a no-brainer when you get in the cockpit. I mean, I, you know, I had no problem going from part 121 regional to 121 major because it's all the same. So that that reduces certain costs within training. It also makes the operation itself much quicker, and it actually makes that operation run much smoother. And so, the reason let, being, let, let me interrupt you there and and maybe dig a little further. What for all those benefits to occur? What do you think would be an ingredient or two that are necessary? 
Well, it, the the ingredient would actually well. First of all, you have to have the applicant ingredient. You know that's really important, and then you also have the have to have the other side. You have to have buy off on your employees and and the actual mm-hmm. actual management. You have two different things here, and and a lot of it's cultural. And it, that's a big part that we haven't really talked about. Kind of a soft item, but you have to have a a good quality product that you're taking and you're forming it into a product that comes out the other end. So the the ingredient would be somebody who has an aptitude for that and and it gives you that opportunity to find out if they do have that aptitude fairly quickly. That's a big yeah. that's a big ingredient there. I, I, I agree hundred percent and I think you know for the people listening to this, I think that's a huge takeaway is you know, what can they be doing now as these programs begin to ramp up? You know, maybe we've got somebody listening who in five years is going to be a qualified candidate. They'll be out of high school or out of college and ready to start this program. What can they be doing now in order to be more, I guess, quote, qualified when that opportunity comes up? Right. And, th- and that's a great point. And I think currently it's, it's, I think it's really simple. You, you, if you really love aviation, uh, you need to dig into some books. I mean, I read yeah. books all the time about other areas of aviation, understanding Part 121, understanding there's lots of good stuff out there. And then you, you actually go out and you talk to people, say, how did you learn this? And and you find out there's so many darn good resources out there. Of course, there's even, you know, like we do here, I do a lot of career coaching, people going into their training for the first time. I'll spend a few hours with them, preparing them for their first training event at the airline. So get you'll know, find somebody, find a mentor, find a coach, and say, hey, Hey, listen, you know, this is this is what I want to do. I want to be ready to, to actually enter either this ab initio program or to enter the airline as a new hire or whatever department, say it's corporate, et cetera. And I think that's really important, too. Yeah, it's uh, starting out with, you know, good quality. Uh, you know, if you're building if you're building something, you're building a house. Well, if you start out with good wood, that house will be better in the long run. Right. Starting out with good people definitely makes the prog- the uh, program success a lot better. And, and that's what I, I say as, a, as far as an aptitude. It's, it's yeah. not uh, – and you'd be surprised who has an aptitude towards flying. I mean, it's – right, yeah. And, and, and there's some people out there that just have, have an average aptitude that may actually, because they work hard, get through that program. And so there's, there's a couple other small measurements in there. They may not be 100% on the raw aptitude, but they have this great attitude, and you know that they're going to make the effort to move through the program. And, uh, and those people sometimes turn out to be even better. Better pilots, yeah. Right? Amazingly, it's you, you think it's just about aptitude. It's not. It, it's you have to have training. Uh, you know, I have, I have a friend who's an incredible athlete and decided, up. Oh, you know, I'm going to give up. And uh, he had this, you know, the ability physically, but decided to go another route. And so they had the aptitude, but decided to go in another direction. And I, I think there's there's a bunch of keys to to success from from the employer, but also the, let's look at the employee. Let, these are the people that we're talking to right now. What is what's the, what's a key to success for the for the employee? And and first of all, a big key is understanding you know where you're going. Yeah. I mean that that's a huge key. I'll give you a good example. If you look at uh, what's the name of that airline anyway, it used to be called Gulfstream, but you could go into a program where you would actually get into the airline after you've done your training and be a first officer at that airline. There's other programs out there, I know that, that are like that. But it it's a that was that's my key right there. That's that's my my key to success is knowing my goal. And mm, that's the right. goal, and it puts me. And it's. I know it sounds kind of strange to some people, but you know that's that's the key is knowing that goal because it's so much easier to get from point A to point B if you if you're looking in that direction. 
Don't look if to you the know side. where you're going. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it's like you got to tune in the right VOR here. Yeah, exactly. And, uh, you know, I think some people think that's strange, but it, it isn't. And I'm, I'm a big fan of some of these programs. Some people say, well, isn't pay for training the similar, similar to ab initio? Eh, not really. Um, it's, it's a way to defray costs, but uh, the pay for training thing is a thing of the past. You know, that's not really, not too many people doing that right now. It's uh, in this, this programs where you pay to get in and then you're in a, in a spot in the right seat. It's not really pay for training because you're actually getting a certificate at the end. So it's a little bit different there. There are so many iterations of what people think ab initio is. Uh, and Eric, I know you've seen some of them where they have these cadet programs where you go into a simulator and you become somebody in the right seat and you start teaching. Uh, what are other ones that you can think of, uh, uh, Eric? Well, I mean, they, they range from all over the place, from starting in the simulator to a modified version of how we typically train pilots now in the United States, where you start off in the airplane and you, uh, but rather than instead of getting a private pilot certificate and then getting an instrument rating and then getting a commercial certificate, you get what in Europe amounts to a multi-crew pilot license or an MPL. And really what that is, is an authorization to operate an airline. You can't go through that program and then operate as a private pilot in a 172. You don't have, you're not qualified. <laughs> so, um, so they, they really run the gamut from, you know, traditional pilot training like we know it uh, with a slightly different, uh, you know, tent or number of hours to complete. So think accelerated training program modeled around an airline's end goals and objectives or one where you don't get any pilot certification except the multi-crew pilot license. You're only certified. Think about it like an RATP in the United States. Um, but without anything underneath that. Like, all you can do is this one specific thing you were trained for. Uh, there are some where you spend uh, the predominant amount of time in a, in a simulator, um, and then, you know, very briefly you get in a twin-engine airplane and fly it around for a while. Um, so it's, they're, they're really all over the place, and it, that's, I think that's why airlines like MPL programs because it gives them, or not just MPL, but ab initio programs in general because they, ab initio is the big umbrella, and then under that there are different tastes or features of different ab initio style programs. But I think airlines like them because they have customizability. They can make it whatever they want to. Um, it's whatever their, uh, their, their tent or their, their intention of what the outcome should be. Uh, that's what the program uh, can be. And so you, when you see programs like Lufthansa or Cathay Pacific that have their own very unique, very proprietary training programs, those are very much airline specific. Or then you look at a company like CAE, who contracts with airlines to offer, you know, a, a basic, I don't want to call it a stock program because it's not, but that offer a type of ab initio program to different airlines based on their personal wants, desires, and things like that. So it's really all over the place, to be honest with you. And if you're, if you're a, um, a pilot in the United States and you're looking at, well, I want to get into an ab initio program, okay, there, those options do exist, but it doesn't work like, the traditional model where you do all of your flight training, you get all your ratings, and then you apply to an airline and then get pre then get psych screened and interviewed, ab initio training works the other way around. So you get psych screened and interviewed at the beginning for your initial aptitude. Um, and then the airline will make the decision then whether or not they're going to fund your training or not. Um, so it, it's almost like, I like the analogy of the Air Force Academy because it's very much what you, you apply, you may not get accepted. Um, and then if you're not accepted into that particular program, of course, there are other options, um, but, uh, but they are extremely different. 
And if you've looked at traditional pilot training as the method to get to the airline job, uh, like Carl said to begin with, my biggest, I wouldn't even call it caution, but my biggest advisory to you would be to make sure if you're looking at an ab initio style program, you get to know exactly what you're dealing with because they are, they're all different from each other. It's not like you know Joe's flight school and Bill's flight school and the airplanes are different. The curriculum looks a little different, but it's basically the same thing at the end of the day. This is not how ab initio works. So make sure you know what you're getting into. Um, ideally, uh, when you contact these schools, you should be asking for references. You know, do you have people I can talk to? Is there a student I can talk to? Um, you need to figure out if you're going to be able to succeed there because it is very much like um, you know entering into a very accelerated, very um, I don't know how to word it, but life-altering style program. I mean, you're. The, the way you live your life will change as a result of enrolling in this program because of the kind of time it takes. I mean, it's, uh, I'm just shooting from the hip here, but Cathay's program is like 50, 60 weeks. I mean, this is, wow. I mean, it's a year of your life that you're giving up uh, to do this. And it's every, all day, every day for 50, 60 weeks. So, you know, you, you've got to know what you're getting into before you do it, is my point. That's for sure. And and what's interesting is that you mentioned Cathay Pacific. You mentioned some of these other airlines that had ab initio originally being foreign carriers. It, there's a reason why they're doing this. It's They don't have a pool to draw from. And by by creating their own pool, they can draw from that pool. And and you have to understand uh, from their viewpoint, you're really not going to go anywhere and do something else because, you know, there's not too many other airlines that are hiring at that point. But why, why, Eric and Tom, are we talking about this right now? For what reason is all this ab initio come up in conversation? Eric, what, why do you think? <laughs> well, you can't talk to anybody who's in aviation without the words pilot and supply coming up in the same <laughs> sentence. Um, and, and some people are vehemently on one side. Other people are vehemently on the other side. And then um, the uh, <coughs> responsible, reasonable <coughs> people um, are in the middle somewhere who, <laughs> who acknowledge that, you know, when, when we look at U.S. airline recruitment, um, the regionals are feeling a lot of pain. I mean, uh, and it depends on the regional how bad the pain is, but there's pain there. Um, if you fly out of a mid-sized regional airport, you've seen that pain because your flight availability is changing. Okay, so it, it is an issue, no doubt about it. Um, um, the majors are, if you had asked, you know, five years ago, they were like, we don't care. If you'd asked two years ago, eh, maybe that'll be a thing. Today, they're all aware of it. You're not going to find you know, a, a CEO at a major airline who's not aware of what pilot supply forecasting looks like at the next five, ten years, at the, at, even at the major level. Um, it, it is a thing. Like, there's, there's no way getting around that. And we're not talking about pilot supply, but in order to understand why there are no true ab initio programs in the United States, it is because there are a ridiculous ton of pilots in the United States. There is a huge pool. Now, you, you have to pay those people enough to go take the job, and then you have to give them a quality of life where they want that job, and that's a whole conversation for a different day. But from a supply perspective, we do have enough qualified people. There are enough people available to do the work, whereas in the European model, that does not exist. There are no people sitting out there with a commercial ticket and 5,000 hours like, you know what, I wonder if I want to go work for the airlines now. That just doesn't, I mean, that... <laughs> <laughs> That's not how that model works in any way whatsoever. So in the European model, like Carl said, they have to create their own pilot supply because there isn't an existing one to draw off of. In the United States, we still have a, a very, I mean, even though it's downsized considerably over the years, a very large military pilot population. 
and the airlines are still hiring a ton of military pilots to, who are coming out of service and going into the civilian sector. Um, we are still pumping out a lot of students through academy and collegiate programs. And then there's people out there who've just done this themselves. They've built up their time. They've done their thing. Maybe they flew survey. They flew pipeline. They did some flight instruction. They're like, you know what? I'm ready to go to the airline. So my point is there's multiple ways in right now. And in Europe, that doesn't exist. Uh, in Asia, that doesn't exist. There are no multiple ways in. Um, this is the way in. So ab initio was created for a very specific need. Um, and until that need becomes really, really real and, a, and apparent to every single person, I don't know that we're necessarily looking at the European ab initio model in the United States in the foreseeable future. It's interesting looking at those statistics. It's just the fact that we have so many pilots, but a lot of those pilots have the freedom to fly on their own. I think you mentioned it there. I have friends that have you know 3,000 hours of multi-time, a commercial ticket, but it's a hobby to them. There's not there's not too many places in the world that that you have that. It's a whole different ball game. And uh, but Tom, I mean, what what would you add to that as far as 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 why we're talking about ab initio? No, it's supply and demand, exactly as Eric said. And uh, you know, if you're a pilot, things are good right now. You know, and and this whole industry, Carl, you've made this point numerous times, is cyclical. And so right now, you know, it's like real estate. Sometimes it's a buyer's market, sometimes it's a seller's market, sometimes it's a pilot's market, sometimes it's an employer's market. So uh, it's simply that you've both made great points, and um, I think this is useful stuff that people can you know, maybe take some notes on as they plan out their career path. You know, and going back to that term, ab initio, and just to, to summarize, an ab initio program is normally something, a program, a training program, where you start from the beginning, and you apply, and you get accepted, and then you go and you train. And then afterwards, you work for that airline. And normally during that whole process, you are actually an employee of that airline. During that process, you're going from point A to point B. I know that a lot of you folks that have been writing into me have been asking about these programs that you're calling ab initio, where at the end of the training program, you have a guaranteed interview with the airline. Not truly an ab initio program. I mean, it's great that you have that guaranteed interview at the end of the line, but that's just an interview, which is wonderful that they set that up, but it's it's just an interview. It's no more than that. It's kind of like what we have with the majors, with the flow-through programs, and those flow-through programs are programs where, you know, they regional pilots can actually go to the major airline and have a position at the major airline. I worked for a regional like that, where I had an actual position at the major airline. Well, the problem is 9-11 happened and they got rid of those flow-through programs. So they can change. At any moment, they can change. But just a, a quick point as far as the regionals and the pain that they're feeling. I can't say which regional I was talking to today. But they their schedules are, for their pilots, they are not very good right now. And one of the reasons is that the major airline that they're working for is pulling flying from them because they're trying to find a regional that can fill the seats. They can't fill all their pilot seats with pilots right now, so they're having to cancel flights, or they're just not able to do the, the, the flying. If you notice, the regionals have gone to this model where they have many different regional airlines. The, the majors have, have tons of different regionals flying for them, so if you can't do the work, I have somebody else over here that can. Well, that's kind of drying up a little bit, and now we're seeing these mentions of ab initio programs, different type of flow-through and gateway programs again. And just like Tom said, this is a good time to be a pilot. You're seeing salaries go up tremendously. 
Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm a, a part of that. I'm real happy that's happening right now. But the worm always turns, and it, it can change on a dime. So uh, ab initio is a great thing. Uh, I don't see, think we're going to see it in the United States just because I feel that we're seeing a little bit of a resurgence in the pilot population amongst the younger people. Obviously, they're not certified yet, but I see a, a much larger interest. We're seeing more interest in the different organizations, but that's going to take a while. Some of these are amongst uh, people that are, are not even of age that can get their pilot certificates. So that's some, some wonderful conversation about ab initio. And uh, guys, if, if that's it, do you want to add anything before we move on to our, our really important listener mail that we have? If you're in an ab initio program, I want to know what it's like because they're all different. I don't, I don't understand all of them myself. Um, and if you're in that boat where you're like, I don't get this, I don't get how it works, welcome to my life. I don't get how they work either. <laughs> they, they, I mean, they, they pop up. Um, they, they, they look really great, but they're all very different, and they're very different from the way I trained. So the only thing I would offer is don't get frustrated if you're looking at ab initio programs like, well, this one's totally different. They are, and it's going gonna, it's gonna to take a lot more research on your part to understand what you're getting yourself into as opposed to what we consider to be traditional pilot training. I don't think that's a bad thing, just something you should be prepared for. That's it. Well, that's uh, that's some good stuff there, and Eric. And as a matter of fact, Cathay Pacific uh, had uh, offered to, to have someone come forth and talk to us. Hopefully, we're going to be able to put that together. It's a little bit of, of moving together, and they we're going to have somebody that uh, that we can talk to that actually is going to tell us what it's like to actually go through a real ab initio program. So, Eric, we may have that question answered for you. In the future. I can't wait for that one. I'm looking yeah, forward to it. We're, we're working on it. It's, it's, it's tough. And we love the people over there. They're, they've been so nice to us and, and have given us so much information. But uh, some terrific stuff. And we appreciate the person that actually wrote in to tell us about the program that they have there in the cadet program because he was hearing so much about the ab initio programs in the United States and was trying to actually help us understand what the difference is. And once we have that person on, that'll be terrific. And by the speaking of which, we're, we're going to have, just like the Express Jet interview we just had, we're having more and more of these regional airlines wanting to come on here to explain why you should work for their airline and uh, and what it's like to work there and, and the process of, of how to go through the interviews and and how to do well on your interviews. And it's, it's, it's a little bit indicative of, the, of what's going on right now because they, they need, they're doing so much to find people right now. It's incredible. But uh, anyway, next, coming up next is our next segment, which I love to do. Really neat stuff is, is listener mail. Now, one thing I do want to mention on the listener mail is if you have listener mail, uh, if you notice what we've been doing is that we've had to, because of our time constraints, a lot of times because we're getting so much listener mail now, we, we've had to actually just kind of answer your question. So what I've done is instead of reading the whole thing, I may not read the whole question. I may just read the actual specific thing that you're asking, and I'm going to summarize your question. I'll try to answer the other portions that are that are personal on another email, but we really appreciate it. Please, you know, don't feel bad about writing a long email. Go ahead and write the long email. We'll pull out that information that uh, that you know we need for this for this podcast and what we need to to answer. I'd have to say about half the emails I get from from you folks are, "Hey, listen, I'm sorry this is so long. Awesome, give me your story. I want to hear." We all would love to hear what you have to say. So moving on to the the first email we have here, we're going to kind of do this as a as a round robin and uh, and move you know around each of us. And I'm going to let uh, I'm going to read it and then then I'll have uh, each of us uh, answer this. So I'll do the first one here first email comes in and says, uh, I'm about to start my flight training with hopes of going on to a regional and or corporate aviation career. 
I have my third class student certificate with no restrictions. However, I'm not about to see a complete 2020 even with corrected lenses in my left eye. I'm corrected down to 2030, and that is as good as we get. My optometrist says it's not uncommon and I shouldn't be alarmed. Except, will this condition keep me from obtaining a first or second class medical? My answer to that is, the first thing you need to do is talk to a medical examiner prior to taking and getting your first class medical and say to them, hey, listen, this is what I want to do. I'm not sure if you mentioned that when you first got your student pilot certificate, if you told him or her that you were going on as a possible career, because they may have had a different conversation with you if you did that. So if you're going in, by the way, anybody going in for a student pilot certificate, make sure the examiner knows that someday you want to be an airline pilot because then they're going to have another conversation and they're going to discuss what the regulations are and what the requirements are. Right now, and I have a link to this, the FAA regulations, you know, in in getting your first, second class, you need 2020 corrected. uh, And it's you can have, you know, almost blind without the glasses on, but you have to have 2020 corrected. Now, does that mean you can't pass that exam no, not necessarily. I mean, it may, you know, I'm, I'm assuming your optometrist was right. You have 2030. I'm not going to question that. But I would definitely go to somebody and say, hey, what are my options? There's anything that I can do. Is there any way I can correct this to 2020? Because there's people that I know that can't be corrected, have gone through certain surgeries, et cetera. Not that I'm advising you to do that. You need to talk to an optometrist. You need to talk to your medical examiner. So definitely talk to your medical examiner first. Does anybody else have something to add to that, uh, Tom? Nope, I think that's great advice and uh, definitely something to do early on. It's good that he spotted that now. Yes, yeah, and, and I know Eric's been through some challenges with your vision, haven't you? Well, I'm, I fall into that blind without corrective lenses category. Um, <laughs> in addition to being colorblind, I also I have twenty six fifty vision. Wow! So um, I think twenty eight hundred is where you're legally blind. Um, so I. I can't see like at all. If I hold my hand up next to my face, about nose width away, I can sort of make out the lines on my hand. Um, so yeah, I'm I'm pretty much blind without corrective lenses. Um, the the only issue there is yes, I mean the regulations state that you have to be corrected to 2020. Understand that uh, at least in some classes of medical, distant and near vision requirements are different. Um, so that's just something I didn't say if it's 2020 distant or 2020 near. I assume he means distant vision because that's what most people think of. Um, but, um, you know, that's just something to keep in mind. There are differences there and ultimately why you should absolutely have that conversation with the medical examiner. Um, you need to figure out which, um, you know, what, uh, what certificate you're going to be able to obtain. And then beyond, you know, what's in the regulations, again, is there, is there a waiver? Is there some other means of compliance that I can go through? that would get me a, a statement of demonstrated ability, for example. Is there a soda for this? Um, and your medical examiner is your number one choice of information uh, on that subject. Great, great advice, Eric. As a matter of fact, we're going to let Eric answer this next question. So, again, oh, no. thanks for that. <laughs> thanks for that question. And we're going to throw this one in, Eric. So I'll, I'll read this one, and it's, it's really a cool question. I, I love these. I hear this all the time. So I, I just love these types of, of people that are out there looking at this as, as a career. First, it starts off with, a, I love your show and listen to all your podcasts. Great unbiased information and advice. I can't get enough. Well, thanks. Uh, here's my situation. I've been wanting a career as a professional pilot for as long a time, but never imagined it was possible with the young family financially. 
now that I'm semi semi an independent rep and child getting married, I can't uh, realistically consider it. Ideally, I would prefer a regional flying or a charter job close to home base. I'm in my early 60s and I have a great career and recently became an independent representative, doing well financially. You know, I started flying lessons at 15 and attended aviation college, went to work for a major airline in a non-scheduled as an AMP airline rep. I left the aviation industry during deregulation and couldn't compete with the military pilots from Vietnam. In retrospect, it would have been beneficial to have continued training and building hours. First of all, don't ever beat yourself up for, for what's in the past. We, we need to learn from what we did and move forward. Uh, and he goes on, here are my ratings and hours and short-term goals. Private and instrument, your current, ATP, 13 months to build the 500 hours. Unfortunately, previous aviation degrees does not qualify for the RATP, the restricted ATP, under the current rules. Um, and uh, 750 hours and 30 multi, have a second class and qualify for a first class medical, A&P certificate, uh, and, uh, but he's been out of the maintenance field for a long time. I now have the funds to train for the commercial and uh, single-engine land and multi-engine land rating, and we'll be starting soon. Your recommendations and advice would be appreciated by us older pilots who still have a few years at age 65 to few years, excuse me, to age 65 at the regionals. Uh, I actually answered him in an email, and he does continue. He says, uh, he says, I believe that older pilots who have the same interests and concerns as I do would love to hear this upcoming podcast. The term older pilots is relative. Some pilots think that too old at 25 to start an aviation career. Boy, I understand that. I was told at 23 I was too old to start the career, and it wasn't until 33 that I actually got started. He continues, I've heard of pilots 60-plus being hired at the regional level. How realistic is it? I sent an email to a prominent aviation instructor, and the instructor said, basically said, forget it. Uh, that answer stopped me a few years ago to dive in. Now, a few years later, I'm considering an SIC program to build my hours towards an ATP and allow to get hired. What's your opinion, Eric? Oh, goodness. Um well, I, I can tell you, obviously, I'm, I'm not in this particular boat in terms of age just yet, but uh, I can tell you I have a, a person on my staff who just turned 65, and he aged out um, right before um, the 60, before the rule changed. Anyway, so his comment was if they, if I, uh, he had been approached in the last two or three years by three different airlines to come back to work for them at like, I don't know, 62, 63 years old. Um, is it possible? Absolutely. Um, how likely is it? That's probably a Carl question, but I know that it happens all the time. Um, what I can tell you in terms of doing the pilot training and getting the thing, get, just getting the the hiring requirements taken care of, Obviously, that's something you want to commit to getting done as soon as humanly possible because talking to the airlines isn't a possibility until you meet the hiring minimums. So that's, that's a key. You've got to get the ATP done. Um, you've got to get the first-class medical done. Um, you, you've got to be hireable uh, before you can start the conversation. Um, and I will tell you this, too. I know a lot of people in that uh, like 55 to 65 region who are going to work at the airlines they may not be working as line pilots. They're working in the training departments. They're working mm. all over the airline uh, because of you know they want to be in that in that mode. Um, but uh, you know the day to day flying thing, um, maybe they wouldn't have enough time to get it done. You know my in looking at this being early sixties, 
so you you know you're going to retire when you're 65. Um, if for me it would come down to you know a, a not quality of life necessarily, but a you know where am I spending my time and, and a value proposition. If the money's not an issue because you know we have this independent thing going on the side, that's great. But I mean, obviously, you know, th- basically you're talking about three four year pay by the time you get forced retired, and three or four year pay with the regionals today is still not all that great. I mean, it's it's a livable wage, but it's not the best money in the world. So um, you know, the time left to make what many would consider quote unquote good money at the airlines, um, I wouldn't say that particular opportunity exists. But is there a opportunity to get a job? Yes. I, that's that's a no-brainer. I, I tell people all the time, if my seven-year-old had an ATP and a first-class medical, they would hire her. Um, <laughs> so anyway, I don't, I don't think that's, that's an issue at all. No, I think I think you're correct on that, Eric. It's uh, you know, and to add to what Eric just said, if if you got to figure out what your goal is, you know, where are you going with sure. this? It's just think about it. You just mentioned a couple of years that he'll have at the airline. Well, if your goal is to say you were an airline pilot and use that down the line to help you get more work, because it does help to say, hey, you're an. It gives you some credibility that you're an airline pilot. Say you want to instruct afterwards, etc. That's terrific. Also, he also mentioned the fact that if you were to go into the training department, we hire at the airline I work for people over 65, and they are hired, but they can't actually fly, but they actually they do get their type ratings, but they don't actually fly the line. And that's another option is to go into the training department. That's a lot of fun. But if you want, if, if your goal isn't financial, I'd say go for it. Uh, if your goal is financial, you're not going to make that as much money like Eric stated it took me about 4 years till I made more money as an airline pilot than I did as a flight instructor so good good uh, good discussion there i know it's uh, it, it but it's realistic on i think on the corporate side well let me ask tom tom what do you think as far as somebody who's looking not just for the airlines but also on the corporate side and starting at that age yeah, that's the first thing that popped in my mind uh of course i'm biased on that but uh i guess you know, I, I don't, how do I say this? I think you nailed it, Carl. You know, why the, the whole thing here is what's your goal? And it sounded like from his email that he really was interested in the airlines. And so, you know, we all know, and I think a lot of your listeners after listening to this podcast, that there's so many roles inside of an airline that being a pilot, uh, you know, you can do those roles. It's not necessarily just flying. And so if his heart is really set on the airlines, like it, it maybe sounded like it is from his email um, I think your guys' advice is straight on, but but if he's open to you know corporate or charter career in that area, you know he might have more uh, longevity career-wise there, simply because you know they don't kick us out at 65 as if you're flying for a rich guy or if you're flying for a company um, that has an airplane. So that might be an option. But the other thing I was going to add is you know Carl, you said you know what's the goal? Get clear on the goal. And, and, but in this gentleman's circumstance, I would also make sure I get real clear on the why. Uh, simply because, you know, there's just no other way to say it. Time's a ticking. Time is of the essence here. And make sure that all this is going to be worth it to you. You know, uh, I'm not 60 plus. I don't know what life's like there, but I I certainly would just not want him to go through, because let's face it, it's tough, right? Getting all those hours and getting beat up and and all that. It's tough. Uh, Just make sure it's worth it for you. Sure. Yeah, that's great advice. I mean, and it may be worth it. Like I said, there's a lot of people that would uh, 
would love to say that they flew as an airline pilot. Yeah. Uh, and then you could still move on to the regionals after that, or excuse me, to the corporate after that, which I, I think is, is something that you have to look at. There's, there's guys flying corporate that uh, are older than 65 out there, as Tom can attest to. Yeah. Uh, but then again, at 65, you're, you know, you still have a, a somewhat of a physical limitation. You, you better be in good shape because, uh, you know, I, I don't know how long I've seen guys last. We had a guy at the the airline. He lasted till he was 75. And now is when, remember, they changed the rules to age 60 many years ago. And he actually was 60 years old and they gave the airlines, I think, or he was 65. They gave the airlines five years to comply with the age 65 rule. Or the 860, the 860 rule. So he was 70. By wow. the time that happened, he had to stop flying, and he stayed in the training department. I think he was 78-year-old or 75-year-old when he left. It was incredible. Yeah. I flew with a, the oldest gentleman was 73, Navy captain, and boy, could Ooh. he fly that plane. Uh, he was sharp. Very yeah. sharp. Yeah. So, you you know, again, you have this skill, and it lasts. Uh, and, and it's a little tougher to add a new skill. But if you have an old skill, as you're older, you, you usually still keep that skill. So you just have to keep up to date, that type of thing. Um, but yeah, great, great. Uh, I would say just go for it if that's really what you want to do and understand the the ramifications, meaning that uh, you may not be making the money that everybody else is. If you're looking for the, you know, the six-figure income airline pilot, you probably won't make it to that point unless you're actually working in the training department. And, uh, and those people make really good money, even if they're not at an airline, they're working for a simulator company outside the airlines. So definitely, definitely a good thing to look at. Really interesting stuff. Um, let's move on to the next question. We got a couple questions we have to get through in the next ten minutes or so. So let me uh, let me summarize a couple more here. Um, let's see. We have one that comes from somebody in the UK, in the United Kingdom, and I'll just summarize his question. Uh, he says, um, "Let's see. My question is this: The United Kingdom has a dismal amount of scholarships and bursaries to help people become pilots compared to what the states have." Uh, the, if I'm saying that right, I think I am. Bursary is basically, it's, it's like a scholarship, uh, and it's an award of money for people that actually need money. Uh, there's usually a financial need that's, that's associated with that. He continues, with a, with a pilot career being a global industry, would I be eligible to apply for stateside bursary or, or sponsorship without having to do the training in, say, Florida? Uh, and he says, great podcast, by the way. I really enjoy it. I drive a lot for work, and it certainly makes the long-distance trips easier. Keep up the good work, blue skies, and happy contrails. You know, that that's some really good – you know, that's a great question because every single scholarship that's out there – and, of course, we have the Aerospace Scholarships Guide. That actually – and you can find that at aerospaceScholarships.com or here at Aviation Careers Podcast. If you, if you go out there and look at the requirements, I, I challenge you to go take a look at some of these. Some you have to be a, an American citizen. Some you don't. Some are sponsored – Worldwide, as a matter of fact, there are scholarships that that people don't even know about that are in their country. Like we were talking about, looking into more in the UK at some point. We're trying to focus on Canada right now, and uh, and some of those re- we're trying to go regionally, but we are adding other ones out there. And some of these are just trying to get the pilot population to grow. And it doesn't matter where you're from, as long as you're interested in getting your pilot certificate. So yes, there are scholarships for foreign students to come in and actually get their ratings and even for some to stay on as as just uh as interns it's um gosh it's a 
now I just it, and M is it the M1 visa? I can't remember the visa now. It just went out my head. Eric, I think uh, you might know what that is. What's that visa? It's again? M1 and F1, and I think the M1 is the regular one, and the F1 is the tourist one. I I can't keep them straight either. Right. I, I don't have to process that stuff, thankfully. So I know that they <laughs> exist, but I don't have to know what they are. <laughs> Well, and by the way, what's wrong with coming to Florida? Come to Florida. I know. I was going to say that myself. <laughs> <laughs> Come to Florida. You can hang out with us. Yeah. The, and not only that, Carl's the weather's good. Carl's got a room. You can uh, sleep at his house. That's yeah, fine. As, as long as you like cats, that's okay. And uh, <laughs> and you, you like sleep, pictures you of airplanes. You at my house, but I got little kids you're going to have to deal with. So. Yeah, you wouldn't get any sleep then. No, no sleep. <laughs> cats or kids, you choose. <laughs> but you know, I, I think it's really a possibility to to come here, or not not just here, other places. I mean, up in Canada is another example. That's another reason we're looking towards it. Um, uh, places like Moncton, uh, places in different areas in Canada that have uh, you know a big part of their economy is is just training pilots, uh, and you see many uh, foreign pilots coming over there because the expenses are so much less. In in the United States, especially, and also in Canada. So yeah, there's there's different training programs everywhere, and there are scholarships that are available. I challenge you to go go check out some of the scholarships we have, and we will be having more for inside the UK. But like I said, there's there's just a, a bunch of them out there. So I definitely would keep looking. Uh, and I do appreciate what he said. He uh, he mentioned that another thing that he looks at quite a bit is he he listens to our podcast and also uh, Rob Mark at the Jetwine blog. And Rob actually has written a really cool book about careers and aviation careers. And I've, we've already talked about that once. As a matter of fact, why haven't we had Rob Mark on here? That's another thing I just uh, yeah. I, I might that note down. Rob's a neat guy. I, lo- I like Rob a lot, and, uh, and uh, we'll definitely try to get him to come on and talk about his book about uh, aviation careers. He's one of the people that inspired me to get into aviation. So we won't tell anybody his age, <laughs> because he's a, but he's a heck of a guy. I mean, he really is, and he's he's done some incredible work uh, both in aviation and also in the media. Uh, so again, thanks for that question. Look up some of the scholarships we have, and and like I said, hang in there. We're gonna, we're still trying to put some scholarships out there for you. So again, thanks. Uh, the next one actually we um, the goes to, and this one I actually I, I went out of turn here, Tom. I'm sorry. So the next one's for Tom, and uh, we're not like I said, I'm not gonna read the whole question because we do have to get out of here pretty soon here. Uh, but uh, let's see. I wonder, yeah, I could do this one. Let me just read this one real quick. It says, I'm a 32-year-old flight instructor with a bachelor's in a non-aviation field whose ambitions are to get to the majors as quickly as possible, whether it's here in the U.S. or overseas in Asia. I'm currently sitting on about 350 hours, 100 multi-engine, and 50 of which was turbine time from a very short career as a pilot in the military. I've only been instructing for a couple of months, and I'm expecting to be instructing for at least another year, if not two. I'm trying to make up my mind early in terms of which road to travel to get me to the majors fastest since I'm already a decade, quote-unquote, behind the curve. Many of my peers are going down the well-traveled path of instructing until 1500 and then going to the regionals in hopes to someday make it to the majors. However, I'm trying to look outside the box in hopes that taking the road less traveled might potentially get me there quicker and be an alternative to having to go to the regionals. We had a visit at work from a local Part 135 cargo carrier here in the, in the area he flies in who also flies for a major cargo carrier under the single-pilot IFR operations. 
They fly a few different types of aircraft, including the Beach 99 and the EMB 120, my favorite, the Brasilia, to name a few. Uh, the hiring minimums are the usual 135 minimums of 1,200 total time for PIC. But they also will hire around 800-plus hours to allow guys to time build with them until upgrade and also have FO positions on the EMB 120 that they'll hire at 500 total time for. Um, and they operate basically under the 135 and Part 91 certificate, depending on the type of flight they're doing. In addition to this, they said that they have a quote-unquote flow-through program to a major airline, and they'll pay for the ATP after com- after the couple years of work here. So anyway, this is a very appealing to me in the fact that I can either go over there with the next year, within the next year, uh, once his one-year contract is up where he is now, and begin building second-in-command multi-turbine time until upgrade at 1,200, where I can then build multi-engine turbine PIC time. I've talked to a lot of my peers who keep telling me that PIC turbine time isn't important anymore, that majors are hiring right seat to right seat, and they don't care about PIC turbine time. And also, that 121 experience is more important, but I'm not convinced that this is true. Um, and I, I have a comment on that after Tom answers this. But uh, my question for you is this, he says. When it comes to getting on with a major, which is more valuable to have, many hours of being PIC multi-turbine under 135 flying turboprops or SIC multi-turbine jet time under 121. I'm just ta- taking into consideration that if I go to the regionals, I will be an FO for anywhere between three to five years or more before I can upgrade to captain and then do that job for a few years before I can get hired at a major. Or, of course, I could always try going from FO at a regional, FO at a major, but that might be difficult to pull off. Anyway, thank you for your time, and I appreciate any help you can provide. Keep up the awesome work with the podcast. You guys rock. Well, thanks so much, and uh, we're going to throw this over to the person that really rocks, and that's Tom Wachowski. (laughs) Well... I think uh, this is pretty easy. You know, in real estate, it's location, location, location. And I, I think you guys would agree in flying, it's PIC turbine, PIC turbine, PIC turbine. I don't mm-hmm. think there's any debate about that. Uh, number one, well, let me rephrase that for two reasons. Number one, that's what I think is going to get you into the next job quicker. Uh, number two, that's where you're going to learn the most. Uh, no doubt about it. I mean, you guys can both attest when that when you're signing on the dotted line for that airplane. I don't care how long you've been flying it, you think differently. So uh, PIC turbine all the way. Yes, I, I would I would say that also. Um, and with and of course turbine is turbo prop. He's thinking that that's not valuable. And he and oh, he also yeah. And and then another thing that he talks about too. And and it is valuable. PIC turbine is very valuable. And I tell everybody try to get that PIC turbine as quickly as possible. He makes remember that point where I was saying I have something to say about that the airlines don't care about the PIC turbine time anymore. Well, I'll tell you what, if anything ever happens and things slow down, they are going to care, you know, because that's that's distinguishing you from – just remember what Tom just said. PIC is PIC. SIC is SIC. Is it true that they're hiring people from FO, first officer with no PIC time, to first officer in the major airline with no PIC time? That's true. Do they want to do that? No. They have to do it right now because – 
there's not as many applicants that are qualified right now going to the majors. And there's a couple reasons for that. We've talked about it. You know, the, these people are actually making a lot, a lot of money now uh, working at the regionals because they've been there for so long and they're making so much money as a, as a captain. So you got to look at that. You got to look at that and say to yourself, gee, you know, what's the best thing for me to do? It sounds like I'd rather get the PIC turbantine. Uh, you're gonna, yeah, you're gonna be sitting in the the right seat of a jet for a really long time at some of these other places. And uh, as a matter of fact, I have another person that I had given advice uh, in this manner. And after I think it was less than two years, is uh, upgrading to captain, and uh, at the uh, at the regionals, and we'll have PIC turbine start building in just a few months. I think that's really really good idea. Um, what do you think, Eric? I, I have to let you chime in on this one. You know, I've heard this a lot too. Um, you know, nobody cares about PIC time anymore, and and that's I don't know if it's true to say no one cares. Uh, that's kind of a broad generalizing statement. I think that you can it's it's fairly easy to find a job in the regional market right now. There's no one's going to argue with that point. Um, the only thing I would say is if you have the option to. Um, build PIC time, you should always do that over anything else because there are a lot of people who I knew and who were counterparts of mine who were at the airlines while I was sitting in corporate when everything started to go downhill and they all went in. They didn't have any PIC time, but they went in in a hiring boom and they were the first ones to go. Um, It's just, (laughs) I mean, it's whether you're thinking short-term or long-term and this is one of those things that I run into a lot when I meet with prospective students. I think once once students get into our program and they get the awesome mentorship that we have from Carl, for example, and all the other people they get to uh, to talk to, they start to understand this better. But when you're looking at this career, much like what you're saying in this in this email, is I want to get there as quickly as possible, and I understand totally where you're coming from. Everybody wants to get there as quickly as possible. My only recommendation there is make sure that in the in the journey to get there quickly you don't skip over a step that could benefit you when it if if things go downhill don't pigeonhole yourself into you know into a corner um, just by trying to get there fast that's my only thing just make sure you're looking big picture and look at where the options are don't hurry to one thing and skip over something else that may benefit you later on that's my only 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 comment that's good advice. I mean, I'm a good, bad example. I uh, I went on to the regionals, had no multi-time, and when I came out after 9-11, uh, I couldn't even fly a Seminole because I didn't have enough multi-time. Uh, even after going to the regionals and flying for the regionals, I only had 78 hours uh, flying time, and, and uh, then I had a total of, I think, I got hired with 76 hours of multi-time at the regionals and got 78 hours. So most of these people want 200, 250 hours of the schools I was applying to to become an instructor in their twins. So, you know, there you go. You know, you, you don't know what's going to happen in the future. And, uh, and of course, you're, you know, you are going to be the one that is going to be, you know, left holding the bag, et cetera. Now, with that said, you know, there's a lot of people that have had no hiccups in their career. So I'm not talking about those folks there. So I think it's really important that you look at your situation and say to yourself, you know, is is this going to work for me? It's a holistic approach. I mean, if you're looking at different airlines, you have to look at which one is best for you. Well, guys, I tell you what. 
uh, thanks for that question, first of all. Thank everybody for all your questions. We're going to have to wrap this up here shortly. But uh, that was our last question. And if you have any questions, please send them to feedback at aviationcareerspodcast.com. Go to aviationcareerspodcast.com. Click on the contacts page. Also, you want to learn something about us, about the hosts of your podcast and, and the other folks involved, go to Meet Your Hosts. That's a great way to find us and how you can find us on the Internet and on Twitter. Uh, with Eric, anything Carl wrote about me. It's all a lie. That's all. <laughs> Actually, I had somebody else write that, Eric. So <laughs> it's got to be true. <laughs> well, I, I tend to lie about myself a lot. So, um. <laughs> well, Eric, how can they find you if, if they're looking for you on the Twitter sphere? Come, come find me on the Twitter. That's fine. I, I love the Twitter. And um, anybody who's talked to me knows that Twitter is a good place to talk to me because I'm limited to, to 140 characters. Um, <laughs> it, it limits the amount of time that I can communicate with you. So uh, you can find me on the Twitter at C Eric Go S E E E R I C G O. And from time to time, you can see Carl and I rib each other. Um, yes. I respect Tom, so I don't rib Tom on Twitter, but <laughs> Carl is absolutely free game. And so you can get caught up in some of the ribbing that goes on on Twitter, which is all good-natured and all fun. Um, and uh, one of the best parts about having Carl as a, as a, as a friend and as a, as a compatriot in aviation also, we get to in, enjoy each other uh, socially as well as professionally. <laughs> well, all the comments are like a big rubber ball that bounce off me, and that's that's the neat yes. thing. And I love the ribbing; it's a lot of fun. And uh, you know that he's talking about our Twitter handle. The uh, at Flying Careers is mine, uh, also at Expert Aviator. But at Flying Careers, if you're interested in getting in touch with me, uh, and you can see all that Eric says about me and all the bad things and all the good things too. He says some good things every so often. And Tom Wachowski it's can good. it is mostly good. Actually, you're right. <laughs> I, I I take that back. And Tom Wachowski, where can they get you other than at the Private Jet Podcast? Well, I'm always uh, best to reach through you, Carl. I know you forward a lot of the stuff that sends over to you. So uh, privatejetpodcast.com uh, is a great place or uh, uh, via Carl. Yeah, cool. And, and I appreciate that. And also, I appreciate everybody listening. By the way, I don't mention this, and I haven't been. I've been remiss. We, of course, have the, the scholarships guide that's out there. We always have a scholarship of the week. Uh, instead of actually reading it to you, I just want to let you know that out there, there's an AOPA Brightling Flight Training Scholarship for $5,000. There's 10 of them available. Wow. Go check it out. Yeah, there's they're out there. It's in the show notes to this, and you can also find it in our scholarships guide. You can find the scholarships guide on uh, on the website. It's a PDF file if you become a member. Also, as a member, you get everything else. You get to actually get, oh, well, you can get uh, all sorts of stuff. Uh, Tom, Tom, you actually did a course on there, didn't you? What was the name of the course? The Pilot Jobs Book. Pilot Jobs Book, and it's awesome. Great, great course. Video course, that's available only for $10 a month, or it's $100 a year for the, for the entire year. You get all the videos. We have the Practical Guide to Winter Flying, Flying Safe in the, in the Summer in Florida, all sorts of new stuff that we're putting out there. So that all is included, all that training material, and uh, we're coming up with more. We also uh, do have coaching. I know that was another some of the questions I didn't answer here. I hear it a lot. Yes, we offer coaching. We do offer uh, interview prep for your interviews, what you need to do is just go to the coaching page, click on coaching, and then it'll describe all those things uh, as far as what you do as far as coaching. We have some people that help us, uh, like Tom Wachowski and also Eric Crump when they can. Well, guys, you know what? This has been a lot of fun. I wish we could talk a lot longer because this has been a blast. We could go on for hours, but we have coming up next in the next episode uh, somebody who's actually a pilot. Uh, who flies helicopters for Air Ambulance, and uh, we're going to be interviewing them shortly. So don't forget to tune in to the next episode. 
The other thing, too, as I said, every time on this podcast, make sure you do something today to move forward in your career. And then write us. Let us know what that is. But do something simple. Go out there, take a look at the Pilot Jobs book, and also take a look at the, the scholarships that we've talked about a lot here. Research what ab initio is. Check it out on the Internet. And, and look at those programs. We'll have links in the show notes. So go check them out. There's some really cool videos that they have on those websites at Lufthansa. They have some awesome material, and you can learn what ab initio truly means. Well, folks, from Eric Crump, Tom Wachowski, and myself, thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next episode. You have been listening to Aviation Careers Podcast, an aviation podcast about living your dream and pursuing an exciting aviation career. This aviation podcast is produced by the Valeri Aviation Corporation. Although hosts or guests may receive compensation for products and services discussed in this podcast, compensation never influences our opinion. Before purchasing any product or service, you should always do your own research. Music by Billy Wheeler. All rights reserved.